0: I'm Randy, the pastor half of the podcast, and my friend Kyle's a philosopher. This podcast hosts conversations at the intersection of philosophy, theology, and spirituality.
1: We also invite experts to join us, making public a space that we've often enjoyed off-air, around the proverbial table with a good drink in the back corner of a dark pub. Thanks for joining
0: us, and welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar.
1: So today we're talking with Dr. David Gushy, who is a Christian ethicist at Mercer University, is that right? Right. Uh, Written apparently 29 books or so, something like that. Um, Very influential in the Christian ethics space. Also influential in the uh, wrestling with the LGBTQ issue, in particular in relation to uh, evangelical Christianity, uh, because he wrote this book that we're going to be talking about today called Changing Our Mind. I think it was published in 2014, Mm 15, something like that. Um, this book has been recommended to me a bunch of times, mm-hmm. uh, when you go looking for what should I read about LGBTQ Christians, this one is usually on the recommendation list. Finally got around to reading it for this interview and it's excellent. It is. It's, I understand why people recommend it. It's a great place to start, especially if you're coming from a conservative perspective mm-hmm. and wondering what you should think about this. And so even though he's done, who knows how many interviews about this yeah. and his years past having written and defended this work he was gracious enough to let us talk to him about it even though he's got other new stuff he could be talking about
0: tons of new stuff and we'll get to that new stuff i mean this this is the first of a couple of interviews with david in the in the coming months and in maybe years but um yeah this was a book that i wanted to get to but i knew that i would be rubbing shoulders with david and it dr gushy and i have grown in friendship and um he's part of the Post-Evangelical Collective, which you've heard from Carrie Lattisser, the executive director, and we've um, collaborated with Brian McLaren on an event. So there's been this smattering, and I've gotten to know Dr. Gushy through that Post-Evangelical Collective, and I've just grown to enjoy him highly. Um, he's just a wonderful person. I really, really love talking about really important stuff with him and about really not important stuff like baseball and, you know, (laughs) uh, all sorts of fun stuff. But um, this book really is important, I think. I mean, he wrote this in 2015. We read the third version, which I would highly recommend that you get because of some things that are in the end that's really important. But I do want to say this episode is not for, can I say it's not for queer people? Um, this is this is like, this conversation is a prickly conversation. It's a tender mm-hmm. conversation. It's a personal conversation for many, many people. And this, this specific conversation with Dr. Gushy about his book, Changing Our Mind, is for, mostly for, I would say, straight Christians, straight people who follow Jesus, who are wrestling with the idea of, should I be affirming or not? I would say. This is for people who have heard many opinions don't really know what to think. Dr. Gushy does a great job of bringing the the biblical scholarship, going into the Greek, talking about what some of these words mean, talking about the real context of some of these verses, debunking some things and then giving us some really practical guidelines for how to think about sexuality as yeah. a follower of Jesus. But again, I just want to say we're it's easy for three straight guys, three straight white guys to talk about sexuality in such a way that's detached from everyday life that queer people have to live with that we don't know anything about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So LGBTQ people probably don't need this episode, uh, but many of them will find it interesting. Many of them have found the book interesting, if nothing else for the interesting uh, surveys of historical scholarship on the Bible and science of uh, human sexuality and I, th- I think it's interesting just to see how a conservative ethicist, still self-described as conservative, yes. I think, um, approaches other conservatives on this issue, even just totally from outside of that. I find it fascinating to watch the dynamics of that conversation. And um, so it's not to say LGBTQ people don't listen to this, but no. uh, know that, yeah, if, if something is left out of the conversation, uh, it's because we were targeting it in a specific direction and we're, we're aware of what is not here.
0: Absolutely. I mean, my hope for this conversation is that, in particular, um, people engaged in the church, in particular people engaged in the church in leadership ways, will be able to listen without bias and be able to just listen. And even more than listen, I want to recommend that you read this book. This is a book that I really, really want to— move people towards, especially if you're straight and considering whether or not this is something that you, you're you wrestling with this. Or maybe you're queer and you're, you've heard all sorts of things from your church, from your parents, from your family, and you're confused based on your, your lived experience and reality. Um, this is somebody who loves the scriptures, who loves Jesus, who takes his faith very seriously, and who has changed his mind about this. And I think it's a really, really good example for us all.
1: So one of the things we like to do around here is shout out our Top Shelf supporters. So Marvin Foster, thanks so much for being a Patreon Top Shelf supporter. We really appreciate your support. We couldn't do it without you.
0: Cheers, Marvin. Another thing we like to do is read reviews because we love when you post reviews. We, Whether they're good or bad, we'll take them all. And um, particularly if they're good ones, we're going to read them out. And thank you for writing them. This is from Senior Julian. Julian says, I just dropped by via a reference by a friend. She posted your link. Wow, wow, wow. Great podcast. Great information, great opinions, and it's nice when you have a guest. Thank you for talking about the things I've wondered about. Well, we love talking about the things that you wondered about, Julian, Mm -hmm. because we like to think about these things as well. So thanks for the review. And please, if you are listening and you enjoy and have enjoyed this podcast, if you could hit pause and just go leave a review and a rating, we would be eternally grateful to you. So our podcast is called A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar, and we take the bar part seriously around here. <laughs> As part of our our show, we sample alcoholic beverages just to set the table for great conversations. We also have a Patreon supporter and just a friend of the show, Tim, who has his own show called Power of Bourbon. He supplied us with incredible whiskeys, and we invited him to, to do the tastings with us. So welcome back, Tim. Thank you so much. We don't know what we're tasting here, but let's dive in.
1: Yeah. I'll say of all the ones we've tasted with you so far, Tim, this is uh, the nose that gives me the most hope (laughs) or or the most promising, I think. What does that mean? I don't know. Like, I'm going to be let down if it's not amazing.
2: No, yeah. Because the nose
1: tells me it should be amazing.
2: Yeah, it's it's a classic caramel
0: vanilla bomb with some oaky notes in it. It really is. Like, I smell this and I smell money. (laughs) This, to me, is what, like an old expensive prestigious bourbon smells like. And it's probably going to be old fashioned Yeah, it's going to be something. hilarious when it's red, pooch. No. <laughs> 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 yeah,
2: this is just some Wild Turkey 101 mm-hmm. that I put in a barrel and oh, shook around gosh, for six months hilarious. and there you Holy go. Holy
1: <laughs> moly. Yeah. Mm.
0: This is amazing. Mm. I'm sorry for pounding the table listeners, <laughs> but man, oh man, it's worth it. There was so much happening in my first In my first sip, I can't even articulate it. I have to take a second sip to start tasting the particularities of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I get like tobacco,
2: some like cherry skins, not like the actual fruit of the cherry, but the skins of it. Uh, There's some like vanilla notes in there. And then on the finish, it's just oak for days.
0: Okay. Okay. So, Tim, you said cherry skins now. Yeah. um, (laughs) I was getting way more like base of stem. (laughs) Now, I want to trust your, you know, your wisdom and knowledge and, you know, bow down to your experience. But when have you ever tasted just a cherry skin?
2: (laughs) Well, no, you taste the whole cherry, but like it's not, I don't know, the flesh has a very different taste than the skin itself. It's a little bit more tart. It's a lot more tart. Yeah, tart. Uh, I, I don't know. I almost want to say juicy type of thing. Okay, and it just invokes the feeling of uh, the skin of the the cherry. Okay, all right.
0: That's that's a good answer.
1: Yeah. I just love it. <laughs> it's yeah. it's proofed really well. I would guess barrel strength. Whatever. Or very slightly under.
0: Yeah. If if I'm gonna be if we're gonna be fools about this. I'll be a fool if this if this is not good stuff, but this is really good. Yeah, if this turns
1: out to be something common, I'm gonna be happy because then I'll go oh, yeah. get some. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I don't think it will be. Tim, tell us what we're
2: drinking. So we are drinking this year's release, which is Hardens Creek Claremont. So what Jim Beam is doing is they took uh 17-year-old, oh, so they took desolate 17 years ago. They put a whole bunch at their three campuses, so Claremont, Frankfurt, and Boston. And they're redoing uh, special releases this year. So the Claremont is only barrels from the Claremont campus. Then they'll do a Frankfurt release, which is only the Frankfurt one. And they'll end it with a Boston one. So you get to truly see how aging bourbon and different terroirs
0: affects the flavor of the bourbon. So which it's is like so cool. So it's yeah. like a multi-campus church. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: We stream the same sermon uh, every week. It's just slow cow. <laughs> Tim, I don't
0: know enough about bourbon to know like, is this a really, really special bourbon or is it kind of just like you can find it anywhere? What is this?
2: So this is the, is a very special limited release only going to come out this year. Uh, and, Really only came out in the early part of the summer, so June, July, and then they're switching over to Frankfurt in July and August. Uh, So, yeah, it's 17-year-old, and it's priced at $180, which anybody that knows bourbon, $10 a year is a steal anymore. So it's a really good for value, and you guys have tasted it now, know that it
0: is... Yeah, An amazing product. Immediately you smell it and you know yeah. this and is you, special. And you
1: you claimed on your channel that the Frankfurt is even better than the Claremont. So now yes. I, I have to have that. <laughs> nice. Well, Tim,
0: one more time, what are we drinking?
2: We are drinking Harden's Creek Claremont Edition. Cheers, Cheers. to Tim.
0: Dr. David Gushy, thank you so much for joining us on A Pastor and a Philosopher Walking to a Bar.
3: It is my pleasure, Randy and Kyle. Good to see you guys.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We're going to jump right into it. You are a Christian ethicist, which in a minute I'm going to ask you what Christian ethicists do and why Christian ethicists are important. But you and I have, you know, we've spent some time together, and so I know your background a little bit, which excites me for who you are and the fields that you're thinking and talking and, and just working in. But you have both a pastoral and academic background. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are right now, David?
3: Sure. I was raised by a devout Catholic mother and a non-church-going scientist father Mm -hmm. who worked for the federal government doing uh, policy analysis. So um, dad was more head, mom was more heart, I was raised in the Northern Virginia area in the kind of the civil service DC community. I left Catholicism behind the the religion that mom was trying to raise us in. When I was 13, I converted in a born again Southern Baptist context when I was 16. When I was 17, I felt called to ministry and I've been pursuing that calling ever since when I um, went to seminary. I discovered that I not only had a pastoral calling, I had an academic calling, and the field that I loved the best was Christian ethics. Why is that so? Why, yeah, because I thought it brought it all together. Christian ethics is about helping Christians think about practical matters of how we should live this life, mm-hmm. it's not airy abstract doctrinal speculation it's the way of life of followers of christ Uh, it's also about um, what we say to the world to government to culture Hmm. and um i thought that christian ethics you might say brought head and heart together it also brought scripture and you might say daily real life together and it's it almost it almost like it, it brought together both the, the public policy, real world gritty stuff that I was raised with from my dad and the born again Christianity that I picked up when I walked into that Baptist church in high school. And I've been pursuing, I'd say I tell people I've been pursuing three callings since I, since I was in my 20s to follow Jesus, to pastor the flock and to be a Christian ethicist. And they all go together, they never really separate from me and i'm I've never been free to lay that calling down. It's been almost forty years
0: so what does it look like to be called as a Christian ethicist and called pastorally? You know I mean I'm assuming one led into the other, but do you see yourself still you know practically in both both worlds
3: I do um I have actually served as Along the way, children's pastor, youth pastor, elder pastor, interim pastor—you know, preach. Uh, I preach, you know, fifteen, twenty times a year. Wish it was more. And I, I think I have a kind of a pastoral sensibility when it comes to relating to my students and to to the people who who I write about or write for, and that's actually very relevant to the Changing Our Mind book that we're about to talk about. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that comes Um, that comes through strongly. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, pastors shepherd the flock. Ethicists help Christians think about what it means to follow Jesus faithfully.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: So academic ethicists, Christian ethicists at least, should be serving the church, should be equipping pastors and lay people, helping Everyone think about difficult questions, difficult discernment challenges about following Jesus in our time.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So you might say, I mean, I believe that academic theologians, ethicists, church historians, and so on in Christianity, they exist to serve the church. Yes, and pastors need to be soaking up as much as they can from these academics but it's a lot easier if the academics are trying to speak to the pastors,
4: Mm -hmm.
3: Um, writing in an accessible way. But anyway, I combine both of those identities, and so it's kind of seamless for me to do both.
0: Yeah. We had uh, Samir and Sherrod Yadav on twin brothers, who one's a theologian um, who worked with uh, Stanley Hauerwas, and the other's a pastor. He's going to Baylor now, I just saw. Yeah, I saw that too. The other twin is a pastor, and uh, Sherrod, who is the pastor, said... Samir works for me, just so you know. Like the theologians work for the pastors to be able to help us communicate what is actually, you know, Christian theology doctrine and how do we live then. So you're very much in line with with those guys. Let's dive into Changing Our Minds. You wrote this book in 2000, or released the book at least in 2015, David. It blew up your world, I know. And blew up a lot of things. I mean, it it started, sparked a ton of conversation. We're getting into it late in this podcast, but I think it's really relevant. These questions about sexuality and the church and how we think about these things and how do we arrive at conclusions are super important. I know our listeners really care about that and are processing that. But let's get after those questions about changing our minds and and our mind and thinking about that. Kyle, you want to start that?
1: Sure. First, are you just sick of talking about this? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it seems like uh a lot happened to you and I just want to be sensitive with the questions I'm going to ask. So <laughs> going in, what's your what's your headspace like around what's this? What's the
3: level of energy for it? Yeah. Um if I were still doing it every day as I was for about 8 years, um I might not be up for this conversation, but in many ways the conversation has moved on and I've been doing other things uh, and so yeah, I'm not I'm not sick about sick of talking about it. I'm ready to roll.
1: Yeah, great. You got a lot of pushback. Um, I read uh, a couple of the, the, the critiques that shall remain nameless. Uh, you had a whole section at the end, which I honestly was my favorite part of the book, which was just a response to critics. So I know there was a lot. What, three three editions at this point or something like that?
3: Yeah, the first one um, was pretty brief, but yeah, the third edition, there won't be any more. I felt I needed to pull together the most significant critiques and engage them. I think that's something you have to do as a scholar. Mm-hmm. And so so I think I did that and nothing significantly new I think has been added since then. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. So the first big thing that I want to discuss, and again, we're going to ask a bunch of questions that would require like full-length semesters to fully unpack, <laughs> and I know that go- going into yeah. it, and so um, I'm going to ask things that you have already described and even answered in your book, but I'm doing it for the listeners who I know are interested, and maybe in future conversations we can revisit some of this stuff, but first, how do you see the role of personal experience? And this is bigger than just this issue, LGBTQ sure. Christians, obviously, um, but it's a huge Focus in this book is a very important part of this larger conversation, and it's a place where your critics really slammed you. Um, from from what I read, uh, they they accused you, for example, of overweighting your personal experience or your relationship with your sister, for example, and underweighting your interpretation of the Bible. Or maybe they wouldn't say your interpretation. Maybe they would just say what the Bible says. Um, so, how do you see the role and that balancing of in any ethical decision, but specifically this kind of ethical decision? of here's what I'm seeing in the lives of people in front of me, and here's how I'm understanding the Bible.
3: I think uh, you've gone immediately to a huge methodological question in uh, Christian ethics and theology. It's to what extent... Okay, let's say we we talk about a theology of divine revelation. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: Let's say that we want to know God's will, and we are hopeful that God wants us to know his will and that God is speaking in, uh, to us in a variety of ways. Uh, the Christian tradition has privileged scripture as, depending on what branch of the Christian tradition, the only or the primary way in which we listen for God's will or God speaks to us. Mm-hmm. Um, the more uh, magisterial traditions like um the Catholic and Orthodox, would say Scripture as refracted through the teaching tradition of the church. The more uh, Holy Spirit-oriented traditions would say be sure to be listening for the Holy Spirit who speaks through Scripture, through tradition, but also in other ways, like through worship and prayer, through moments of divine uh, encounter. It has really only been... In the last century, I would say, or less, that strands of Christian theology and ethics have said just personal experience should also be understood to be maybe not a co-equal source, but a significant source of knowledge relevant to discernment. Uh, especially when you uh, listen to the liberation thinkers, they would say, after in a critical vein, that social location, class, status, race, gender, position in society has always been a factor in shaping how people think. Mm -hmm. Um, But that The Christian tradition, like a lot of other religious traditions, has tended to obscure this under the uh, authority of the tradition or the magisterium, the the leaders of the church.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: We, the leaders of the church, almost as if we are disembodied humans who do not have experiences or interests Mm
4: -hmm.
3: or social location that matters. Mm -hmm. I I don't want to... um, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot there, and... It's also quite readily apparent when you really think about it that there are things that can that can be learned through experience uh, that cannot be learned any other way. And it's also the case that experience, hard experience, failures and uh, so on have been interpreted by the church in such a way as to lead to changes in in doctrine and practice. A good example is um, listening to the experiences of abused spouses, especially women and children, beginning especially in the 60s and 70s, helped to change church practice about divorce. mm mm-hmm. There was not a doctrine that said that abuse was grounds for divorce until we began listening to people who had the experience of abuse.
0: hmm And there's no verses that say abuse is grounds for divorce, correct?
3: No, there isn't. You have to intuit it from, you can maybe take Paul in a 1 Corinthians 7 and get there, but it's not explicit. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. Um, I talk in the book about how centuries of Christian anti-Semitic teaching and practice mm-hmm. We're only seriously corrected after the experience of the rotten fruit culminated in the Holocaust. Um, And so, yes, I take seriously what the experience of LGBTQ people has to say. That experience must be brought into dialogue with scripture and tradition. And it also is brought into dialogue with what uh psychiatrists and psychologists and anthropologists and sociologists say about uh sexuality in human nature and human culture so i do not back down from resisting the idea that all the truth that we need is derivable from uh reading of scripture and tradition apart from engaging the relevant human experience
0: and let's be honest, no one does that, even if they say they do. No one does it. It's pretty much impossible. And I also do want to say, just to, just for our listeners who haven't read the book, that critique is extremely unfair, because the book is just absolutely loaded with very rigorous biblical scholarship, mm-hmm. looking at all the verses that could have any tie to sexuality and sexual orientation and homosexuality. Um it's extremely like remarkably fair to both sides of the conversation. I mean, you don't you don't you know, turn a straw man into the uh, the the opposing argument. You really give it some fair contextualization and you don't condescend. It's a it's a really generous way to write a book about a contentious issue. So well done, David.
3: I appreciate that. I mean, it could I mean, it could have been five times longer with mm-hmm. a lot more detail on every every passage or whatever. But I really, the the book began as a series of uh, blogs, basically. So I was aiming for 2,000 words per blog, which ended up being essentially the basis of chapters. And I really, uh, talk about, um, here's a spirit claim. I really feel that the Holy Spirit inspired me to write essentially what got written, the way it got written. (laughs) I mean, there was editing, but in the end, what resulted was the kind of book you could hand to a, 17 year old conflicted young person yes. and they could actually read it. Or yeah. they could hand it to their parents. Yep. You know, so so that's the way the book has functioned and why it has sold so well because because it meets a, a pastoral need and has adequate scholarship, at least so from my perspective and from a lot of other people's perspective. You know. I think
0: from most layman's perspective, it's quite rigorous. <laughs> um and for most people who uh Try to have an opinion on the matter and try to say that the Bible is clear. It's far more rigorous than most people have, you know, put in any biblical scholarship into trying to figure out what the Bible actually says about sexuality and,
1: and homosexuality and all
0: of it. Go
1: ahead, Kyle. yeah, Yeah, and I, one thing I really appreciated about the book, especially the biblical portions, was that it preserved the ambiguity and the unresolved nature of the biblical stance or stances would be Mm -hmm. more accurate Mm -hmm. about the whole web of LGBTQ-related issues, um, rather than, which I see, honestly, from conservatives, but also sometimes from liberals, of which I am one, claiming the authority of the text in service of like kind of a a pre-existing agenda. I think that's actually acceptable in in some circumstances, but maybe in this book wouldn't have been the best tack, and you didn't do that. And I really appreciated it, because the Bible just— as Randy was just saying, it's not clear, and it is ambiguous, and there is room for disagreement, I think reasonable disagreement about issues like this. And acknowledging that forces you to take in other kinds of evidence, which I think is absolutely crucial in this, in this conversation in particular. Um, so let me, back to that methodological point I asked a moment ago, let I me mean, pose yeah. a hypothetical um, just to get com- more concrete about this for some of our listeners. Let's say you had been convinced in your study of the biblical uh, passages that they did support the traditionalist ethic, would you have still made the transition that you did? How would you have weighted it against all of the other lines of evidence that you were exploring?
3: I would say, I appreciate the way you described the wrestling that appears in the book.
4: Mm
1: -hmm.
3: You know, um, now one one of the aspects of kind of inerrantist doctrine is that the Bible can be defined as clear like perspicuity is part of the dogma right
1: yeah
3: um and so to say it's not clear is itself uh a challenge to the doctrine of inerrancy Mm
4: -hmm.
3: it's a doctrinal challenge Mm -hmm. but i do think it's it's not clear partly because if you weigh cultural background seriously it, it it complexifies the reading readings of the text and if you weigh what we know about sexuality and uh, gender today and the testimony of suffering uh, on the part of millions of LGBTQ Christians and ex-Christians, it makes it even less clear. It's more complicated. And so, in a sense, the book succeeds if people are, are motivated to enter into this as a wrestle rather than as an open and shut case either way. I I do think that any kind of just liberal dismissal, oh, you know, obviously the Bible uh, is either wrong or the Bible is not relevant or the Bible should be read in an inclusive way, that would be way too simple also, right? But the way you framed your question, I don't think I would have published a book on this subject if I became convinced in the biblical study that the traditionalist position was correct. Plenty of people have written that book, and I, I don't think it would have been needed. I think that the reason a series of blog posts became a book was because I became convinced by the end that a better reading of Scripture and a better a better reading of the overall evidence picture uh, had emerged for me.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And that hasn't changed in 10 years. I'm still convinced that a better a better reading of the overall pattern of evidence— that we must discern today uh, leads to the uh, covenantal, fairly traditional vision that I offer that just includes LGBTQ people on the same terms as everyone else.
1: Yeah, one, one more quick follow-up on this, and then I pr- promise I'll stop. Um, so I don't, I don't know your theological background. I don't know what uh, denominational context you do ministry in, but you at one point quote or cite approvingly the Wesleyan quadrilateral, Right. Um, and this has been helpful to me while I, I'm more liberal than Wesley. I would take it further than he did. Um, it's been, it was helpful to me when I first encountered it in coming to terms with my, at the time, just kind of a temptation to consider other kinds of evidence as heavily or maybe even possibly more heavily than how the scripture was seeming to me at the moment. Um, And so I wonder if that would lead you to a place, because what I'm really trying to get at is not would you have written the book, but what would you have chosen (laughs) Um, if it seemed to you that in every case except the Bible, this was the correct ethical choice? Because for me, for a while, that was the case, Um, and, and I can't pretend that my reading of the scripture wasn't impacted by that. I later came to be convinced along various different hermeneutical lines about, you know, different views about the importance of the the scriptural texts. Our listeners know about that because we've talked about it before. But even if that hadn't been the case, even if I had remained convinced, as I once was strongly, that uh, the scriptures supported a traditional ethic, I would have still chosen to go against them because of the other lines of evidence, which probably makes me a little further than Wesley would have, but it at least puts a crack. It opens the door for that kind of thing, right?
3: Yeah. Um, Wesley himself, I'm pretty sure that Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, um, the main kind of experience he was interested in listening to was religious experience. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: So it is true that when he was dealing with slavery, his writings about slavery took seriously the experience of enslaved people. Mm -hmm. And when he wrote his uh, thoughts on slavery, he brought that in hard, and he appealed to the human and Christian sympathy and empathy and love that we're supposed to have as Christians. So... Anyway, what, what he meant by experience is kind of debated, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it's a great question. It's really hard for me. Uh, my background is Southern Baptist. I am today more moderate Baptist um, with a, a deeper appreciation than I used to have of the the great tradition of the church that you see in Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism and Anglicanism and so on. The The grand magisterial traditions yeah. that that have the longest uh, trajectory, I take very seriously, and I don't I don't easily, um, I don't dismiss them. I want to be in conversation with them. As a Baptist, as a Christian, and as an ethicist, I don't think I could have felt free to say, the Bible says this, and I just reject it, mm-hmm. um, and to continue in my calling, either as a pastor or as an ethicist.
1: I just think you know? of um, the analogies that you use, right? Um, The abused spouse analogy, or my God, the the Jewish analogy. And it's easy for me to imagine being in a place of ministry at a certain point in history, and just not having the evidence available to me to have reasonable alternatives to a very anti-Semitic theological interpretation of the Bible, not being able to see outside of that as what the Bible says or means, and yet seeing the evidence in front of me of the suffering, and knowing it was wrong, and knowing that because of its very obvious wrongness and what the Holy Spirit is clearly saying to the communities of the churches at that moment, the text that I took to be a moral authority, either I'm misunderstanding it or it's not that moral authority. Yeah. And it, it just seems I'm forced to make a choice if that is in fact, know, I don't think that should be your framework, but if that is in fact your framework, and some people are trapped in it, unfortunately, for historical circumstances beyond their ability to get out of you, there's still a, there's still a moral obligation there.
3: Yeah, we have learned that the biblical text contains elements that even on their most obvious reading are actually dangerous. Mm-hmm. Joshua passages talking about killing every man, woman, child, and animal in a in a city. Mm-hmm. How many times have people said, "Aha! Well, there's our warrant for genocide yeah. or mm-hmm. for." You know, Holy War, right? Certain statements about women.
4: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, The pattern of what what the theologians, historians call the teaching of contempt towards Jews. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The the handful of most most negative statements about same-sex activity that are there. And so these are like uh, hand grenades embedded in the scripture. Those of us who are responsible for interpreting the scripture... And have that calling, have a responsibility to teach patterns of interpretation that diffuse the hand grenades, uh, but not on the basis of external criteria, I would say, but on the basis of the life teachings, death, and resurrection mm. of Jesus, and, and the implications. So, in other words, the criteria comes from within, yeah. not from outside.
1: We have methodological differences here that go deep, but that's for a later conversation, I think, but I appreciate that clear that clarity. Yeah. 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 Keep going. Oh, okay. I was going to hand it over to Randy, but he gave me permission not to, so here we go. Um So you just mentioned something that reminded me of another thing I read in one of the critiques. And this seemed to be a very common objection, not just to your book, but to any kind of uh, even more inclusive, not even outright affirming, but just more inclusive stance of LGBTQ people. And that is that the church has had, has been univocal on this. And the the scriptural tradition has been univocal on this. All the way back, there's been one thing, who are you to change (laughs) The church's uh, sexual ethic on this issue. So, how do you think about that claim that the spo- the church or whoever tradition has spoken with one voice about this for 2,000 <laughs> years, or maybe even longer, and therefore a traditional view? At least, if nothing else, has the burden of proof. Uh, yeah, it definitely has. Side.
3: I think the I would say that the argument of revisionists does face the burden of proof, um, and I, I attempted to provide it in the book.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: I do take seriously. Well, I I gave a paper over the weekend at Society of Christian Ethics. I talk about the bulky, weighty mass of the Christian tradition. It's just there like a big old tree, and you have to engage it. You have to understand it. You have to engage it critically, but you have to know that it's there. There have been um, various efforts on the LGBTQ question to propose that the the univocality is not as univocal as people say. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was John Boswell's early work on, like, same-sex partnerships in Europe. It's been a long time since I looked at it. The idea that maybe there was a little more breathing room than than eventually emerged, Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't say that that that's – I mean, that certainly did not become a part of my argument. Mm -hmm. It is a big deal to say, you know, this great, big, bulky, massive tradition turns out to have been wrong. Mm
4: -hmm. Yeah. A big deal. Yeah,
3: I gained comfort, and I hesitated on that brink. I really did because I knew that, that was a big deal, and I knew that I would be slammed for it. Yeah, but it helps that a lot of my work in ethics has been historical, and I, I've done enough reading in the Church Fathers to see many ways in which they were wrong.
1: <laughs> sure, yeah. you know, and many ways I think in which their university is an illusion. <laughs> like, read right for any medieval historian. I mean. It's just an illusion. Like things, things. That's not how debate works amongst <laughs> serious theologians or philosophers. Or
3: right. So, I mean, the biggest example was the history of Christian anti-Jewish teaching, mm-hmm. which arguably the time bombs or the grenades are right there in the scripture itself, especially in the Gospel of John.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Certainly, just the little nuggets that you find. You know, I mean. His blood be on us and on our children in Matthew twenty-seven. Uh, they are of their father, the devil, in John eight, etc. You put him to death by murdering him. Even th- that's said to the Jewish leaders, but it's Rome that crucifies. You know
4: mm-hmm.
3: all of that, and then you have some of our most revered church leaders, Latin and Greek, and then later into the medieval period, and then you get into the Reformation. It's the same thing. Oof luther was among the worst repeating the anti-jewish tropes for century after century after century um blessing or at least looking the other way at pogroms and exile and eventually and killings and eventually the holocaust itself my dissertation was on how christians acted toward jews during the holocaust i had specific stories from all over europe of church leaders preaching and demanding that their people not help the jews because the Jews were, quote, only getting what they deserve for killing Jesus. Mm. So a Jewish baby in Poland in 1942 is going to be only getting what she deserves for killing Christ. That's 2,000 years of tradition, that tradition was wrong. Mm-hmm. The Vatican, and said as much, and, you know, it's hard for the Vatican to apologize directly, <laughs> but Vatican II, Nostra Tata, essentially renapped, that entire body of, of tradition, the Lutherans renounced Luther on this. Mm-hmm. And then um, there's a lot of work being done. I, I listened to some papers at Society of Christian Ethics on slavery, and there's some reassessment of what Augustine said about slavery. Um, hmm. Augustine took slavery for granted and built it into his theology. Of course he did. So it, it isn't that slavery was just kind of a southern thing, as a deeply embedded pro-slavery thing was in the tradition history of uh, misogyny in Christian teaching. And of course, if you take seriously liberation theology, womanist theology, the Latin Americans were saying <laughs> in the 1970s that that the bulk of the tradition blessed conquest, genocide, and um, the subjugation of the indigenous populations of South America, uh, North America. James Cohn was saying that white Christianity was a heretical, long, long centuries-long uh, reification of whiteness in the name of Christianity. In other words, the the dudes who are making the argument for the kind of infallible tradition and who are you to challenge it, people of color, women, mm-hmm. queer people, they never make arguments like that.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And that's something that struck me as reading your book, David, is we're not saying God gets things wrong, right? We're not saying the divine life gets things wrong. We're saying the church gets things wrong. And that's just that's just there's no debating that. I mean, the church was burning people at the stake for believing for saying that maybe, you know, our universe doesn't rotate around the earth. You know. Right. There were things there were verifiable empirical things where the church was wrong and devastatingly wrong and violently wrong. And right. and that's just natural that a human institution that's commissioned by God but run by humans is going to get it wrong and we're going to have to course correct and that things that we say and do now our kids and grandkids are probably going to have some course corrections for us and say our the church got it wrong and our the ones who passed it on to us got it wrong and it's just how things go it's called whatever i just don't understand that completely the the argument but you say in the in the book you said this little statement that just stuck out to me you say every generation has its hot button issue to confront and it made me think of it, it. It actually comforted me because I, like you, take the scriptures seriously, and I, like you, take church tradition seriously. And I, I, this is a weighty topic that has caused a lot of fear and trembling in me and many, many other countless people. Um, but the fact that this is not new to the journey of following Jesus and being the church is really comforting. Can you give us just read us a little bit historically? What are some of these, for example, some of these? Issues, these hot button issues that every generation has had to wrestle with?
3: Well, I'm old enough where uh, my career started where the hot button issue was women in ministry, Mm 1990s. And Southern Baptist Seminary, where I studied and where I began my teaching career, in 1985, when I studied at Southern, there were women theology professors and women preparing to be pastors. By 1995, that was banned. Hmm. God must have changed God's mind rather ferociously in in a 10-year period, right? (laughs) Um, Power shifted, and so the rules changed. Mm -hmm. You never forget that when you live through it.
4: Hmm.
3: So women in ministry. In the 60s, it was integration, Mm -hmm. civil rights. Uh, In the 40s, though there wasn't much debate, I mean, there were pacifists still saying no Christians allowed to kill so they couldn't go to war. Or how about the debate over the legitimacy of nuclear weapons?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: On uh, the 30s, uh, government intervention in the economy. In the early part of the 20th century, the progressive movement and social gospel versus more of a fundamentalist evangelism only kind mm-hmm. of vision.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: 1850s, it's the abolition versus the pro-slavery argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about... 1776 is it okay to rebel against great britain
4: because mm-hmm.
3: after all romans 13 right
4: mm-hmm.
3: treatment of the native americans uh there was a debate on the part of the spaniards as to whether the indigenous populations had souls whether they had to be treated according to the laws of war and the laws of humanity with which europeans had to be treated so do indigenous people have souls big debate so you so, you know yep We keep on going, right?
0: Yep. Yeah, and it's easy for us to just slide through these topics because obviously we know that they were all wrong. But these were real live debates with a lot of contention, a lot of passion, a lot of, you know, holding to scriptures and pointing to scriptures for both sides. I mean, these weren't just opening, closed-shut cases, right?
3: They weren't. Uh, A couple times I've considered writing a book that would be about the way scripture was used on both sides of debates like these, But Mark Knoll, the historian, did a book like that, so I decided I didn't need to do one.
4: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, It does lead to a fair amount of uh, hermeneutic of suspicion related to the way the Bible is used. Mm -hmm. When you see the arguments from scripture, um, some of them absolutely appalling. I mean, the way the curse of Ham was used to justify segregation and slavery.
4: Yeah.
3: That little bit of fragment from, what is that, Genesis 9, to to justify uh, African slavery for centuries and so on. So, yeah, there's always a hot button issue. Churches are always dividing. People are always arguing with each other. If they have the chance, some people are putting other people to the stake or to the prison or to the rack. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And so... It is exhausting to have to engage all these controversies. Uh, some of us might like to be able to escape the controversies to a beachfront somewhere, but um, but they're there, and that just goes with the territory, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. So speaking of one of those moments when the debating how to treat human beings is reflected in our exegesis of the scriptures, you cited Bonhoeffer in regard to this um, objection that people give to an affirming stance, which says it's it's violating the created order, right, and appealing to Genesis 1 1 and 2. And you say Bonhoeffer is an example of someone who rejected using the created order as an argument for contemporary ethical dilemmas. Can you bring us into that a little bit? How did Bonhoeffer do it, and why do you think it's live to this conversation?
3: Uh, I'm actually teaching a Bonhoeffer class again this semester, and so I will be revisiting those texts. But but both in his little book called Creation and Fall, And then more clearly, as I recall, in his ethics fragmentary book, in a chapter on, I think it's the one that's on natural life, he says, arguments from creation are problematic because we live on the other side of the fall. We can't get back. Let's say we even accept, we accept creation, fall, redemption, consummation as our Essential paradigm of salvation history, mm-hmm. which I think it's hard—it's hard to dissent from that entirely and be within the Orthodox Christian tradition. So, but he says we live on the other side of the fall. Everything is refracted through the fall, including what we understand to be natural. And so um, he says at one point, his effort to define what is natural is something like the natural is the created. Um, and fallen yet oriented towards the coming of christ and the unnatural is the created and fallen yet rejecting the coming of christ so he was looking at the nazi regime and a lot of the stuff that they were doing and um this was his way of understanding they were making arguments from how the world should be but what they were doing was unnatural and um Sometimes they were actually arguing from their theology of creation. It was a hierarchical theology of creation. In any case, what I what I mainly took away from Bonhoeffer was to look forward to the redemption that is coming in Christ, to have a forward-looking, what does it mean to, to lean into the coming redemption, rather than a backward-looking, let us go back. To the myths of the garden of eden and draw our ethics from the picture that we have that we have created for ourselves mm-hmm. about what that is about mm-hmm. so like when people make the argument from creation see look genesis 2 you know god made them male and female and adam and eve and man leaves father and mother and cleaves to his wife and so therefore there's only maleness and femaleness and therefore there's only legitimate heterosexuality and that resolves it but there's so many problems with that i don't think genesis 1 and 2 is supposed to be read in that way mm-hmm. anyway i i enlist bonhoeffer as what do we do with the real human beings who are around us not the mythologized idealized Mm-hmm. Human beings of the Garden, but the actual human beings that we meet in Milwaukee or Atlanta. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What does it mean for these people as they are seeking to follow Jesus, baptized believers, with the sexuality that they have been given to follow Jesus faithfully? What does that look like for them?
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
3: They can't go back to the Garden. Yep.
0: Yeah.
1: Good. Nobody
3: yep. can go. Nobody can go back to the Garden.
1: Yeah. It always struck me as odd back when I was reading reformed theology in college that they were really big on the noetic effects of the fall until it came to their own theologizing and mean, it just seemed to like right. not be relevant anymore somehow.
3: Right. We know exactly how God designed everything. We know I mean, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So this is also a pastorally motivated thing. You take a 20-year-old gay man who knows himself to be gay and has known himself to be gay since he was 10 or 12. And you say Okay, Bill, here's what you got to do. You got to conform to Genesis 2, as we have read it. Mm-hmm. Um, Find a wife. Have sex with her. Make babies. Yep. Be heterosexual. This is redemptive. This is the only path that is redemptive for yes. you. Yes, And if you can't do that, then you are confirmed in your reprobateness. Mm-hmm. That... Is that is absurd and unworkable and
0: cruel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, no disagreement here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Um, I'm going to do that thing at least like probably 3% of our listeners really likes, which is when I throw in a philosophical reference that nobody cares about. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I was struck by the similarities uh, for anybody out there who hasn't read Bonhoeffer or who can't quite get beyond the theological notion of a fall. Um, There's a totally evidential version of that same kind of point in John Stuart Mill um, when he's writing, interestingly, about the subjection of women he says, I deny that anyone can know the nature of the sexes so long as they've only been seen in the present relation to one another. In other words, we simply only have one kind of evidence. We have nothing to compare it to because it's always been this way for as long as anyone can ever remember. And so who are you to tell me what the nature is right? Uh, when when you're working with the same evidence that I am? So you don't need a fall to make that point.
3: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good thought. And it's interesting, I say this in the book, how often arguments from creation have been used to ratify and reify humanly created patterns of injustice and mm-hmm. oppression.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yep.
0: So... Later in the book you cite Lisa Cahill, a Catholic ethicist, and she said something you paraphrased her, and I'm gonna paraphrase your paraphrasing of her, so please clarify where I where I get this wrong, but she said something to the effect of any sensible sexual ethic is to root these ethics in the real world, and that we should counsel followers of Christ to follow the more the most morally commendable course of action concretely available in their particular circumstances. Do I need to say that again?
1: I no, with. we got it. We can rewind. Okay. All right, good, <laughs>
0: good, good, good. Can you flesh that out for us? Because it seems very, very, um, like of the ground, of the earth. It seems very basic, and I can understand that. I like that. But can you get, get at a little bit of what Cahill is getting at? What do you think, and how you interpret that? You
3: know, I'm increasingly convinced that there's a latent idealism, and idealism is a bad word for me in ethics. There's a latent idealism in how many Christian traditions approach moral issues. In other words, and this is a a nice follow-up to the last question, you posit an ideal, Mm -hmm. like, how about this ideal? The heroic, sacrificial husband who is the head of the family and the graciously submissive wife who subordinates herself to the husband. Okay, so how many times have we heard that be taught as the vision, right? Okay. And this is the ideal uh, that some people present. And then there's no real accounting for, for example, the totally predictable effects of inequalities of power or the way in which the subordination of one person to another in marriage can distort the power dynamics and, and the decision-making processes and even the may, the way male and female children are, are treated in the family or whatever. In other words, there's an idealized vision and no ability to account for the real world. Or how about marriages for life? Marriage is parallel to the relationship between Christ and his church, Ephesians 5. The relationship between Christ and his church is indissoluble. Mm -hmm. Therefore, marriage is indissoluble. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, this this guy routinely holds a gun to the head of his wife. Well, hmm. But marriage is indissoluble. Yep. I think that the real struggle in ethics is to have norms that have some some, some meaningful uh, implications that, that set limits on our behavior, but that they're offered to real people, real fallen people in the real world, in their concreteness. And so I'm essentially proposing in the book that a demanding norm the very demanding norm of covenantal lifetime marriage, it is reachable but hard for real people. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the norm that should be offered to lesbian and gay people. that reachable but hard norm mm-hmm. The norm or to say that, oh by the way, what's also in that norm is they have to become heterosexual. That's not reachable. that's impossible. Wow. Or they have to live as celibate people their whole lives, even if they have no calling to that. That's not reachable. That's impossible. And so I think Cahill's quote helped to reinforce my idea that ethics has to respond to the reality of human um, human nature, human experience, mm-hmm. human limits, not by surrendering moral norms, but by um, applying them to people in their reality.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of philosophy I want to talk about here. <laughs> but but we don't have time for it. What you said just reminded me a lot of Bob Adams's uh theory of ethics and I would really like to talk more about virtue theory. Maybe maybe at a later date we could <laughs> sure. yeah. go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. I am going to ask a philosophical question though. Um and it's something that's come up on our show several times in various contexts and now that we have an ethicist on the show I want to get your take. Um, And I know that there's an entire philosophical literature on this. So just um, dip your toe. Um, Under what conditions do you think a belief is immoral or to put it differently, when does one become culpable for holding a belief that has harmful effects? It has obvious implications for this conversation.
3: Yeah. I think that the effects of the belief are what is culpable. And, The effects of a belief are revealed by by successive iterations of those effects. So what's interesting about this issue is take the traditional belief on sexuality. I mean, the average Christian conservative who holds the traditional belief has no idea in the beginning that there's anything that could possibly be harmful about Mm -hmm. it. Just being biblical. Yep. Just trying to follow the text. and But then, it is only when they listen to their own queer kids or people in the church who can document the harm. When you say this, it increases my mental distress. The more intensely you say this, the more often I feel like hurting myself when you did this, this person went out and killed themselves. Mm -hmm. The thing that is so striking about the traditional belief is it is predictably, it has predictably harmful consequences for LGBTQ people. Um, And by now it has predictably negative consequences for those who are, who care about LGBTQ people. In other words, if you routinely preach a, a, a negative message, you are, creating alienation from God, church, and whatever for those who are listening to the message, who are allies or friends. Mm -hmm. Jesus said you will know them by their fruits. The traditional teaching bears persistent bad fruits. That matters. So I think that's what you have to pay attention to. And that is what people end up paying attention to when they change their mind. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Parents who say, wow, every time I said this, I thought I was following the biblical script, and I was creating more damage in the soul of my child and in our relationship. Yeah, It is as predictable as if you hit a hammer, if a hammer hits a nail, it's going to drive the nail in. It's just cause and effect.
0: Yeah, And I, I think that kind of ethic is taught to us by Jesus. I mean, we've said this on this podcast before, but I mean, in Matthew 7, when Jesus says, look, guys, here's the way to tell if it's of the kingdom or not. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. It just doesn't work. Look at its fruit. I think that's Jesus just telling us, what is the fruit of your belief in this system? And if it's leading to death, homelessness, self-hatred, self-harm, you fill in the blank, we've got to rethink this, right? Towards the end of the book, David, you, you outline three sorts of sexual ethics that culture holds. From an ethic of consent uh, on the kind of the more meager end, uh, ethic of love and commitment, which I think is probably the biggest sexual ethic that our society holds right now. And then on the other more traditional side, an ethic of covenantal lifelong marriage. You say you hold to that. That third one, the covenantal lifelong marriage, which I'm excited to talk to you about because I think there's this misnomer out there that says that if you are affirming of homosexuality, it's just you just adopt this anything goes sexual ethic. You, you have nothing to say on the matter whatsoever. And I want to say, no, that's not the case at all. Um, can you s- tell us why you still hold to that covenantal marriage, you know, ethic of sexuality and what the, what an affirming stance has to do with that?
3: Yeah. One thing I appreciate is that most of my smarter critics have understood that that is what I say in the book, and they have accepted that, oh, okay, so so he's not in anything goes liberal in mm-hmm. that sense.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So uh, I'll take what I can get, and I, so I take that, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I would say it goes back to my answer about a hard but reachable norm that appeals to the best that is in us. I wrote a book on marriage, and I think it was 2001. It's called Getting Marriage Right in a more evangelical stage. Nobody knows, even knows about that book anymore. I have a friend who says that's part of the gushy deep tracks, right? <laughs> deep tracks back there. Um, and I say that um, most human beings historically have felt both the need and the difficulty of bonding with another adult sexually and romantically and making a family with that person and family formation of this type is what is what creates the passing of the generations because sex happens and babies happen. You go from one generation after another, the institution of marriage has been until recently the both religious and cultural a normative structure for this family formation process. Young people move into adolescence. They, they develop sexually. They start yearning for sex. They are also yearning for love. And the society, including the religious institutions, help them to understand that the, the best way to deal with these strong yearnings is to move towards finding a partner for life and marrying them. And then they are instructed in the nature of that relationship. And I I think the best structure is not so much sacramental, like marital indissolubility, but covenantal. The two of us make a sacred covenant with each other. We ask God to help us keep the covenant. We exchange promises as to what we are going to commit to each other. And then we seek to live out those promises faithfully all of our life. Mm -hmm. Um, I say in the marriage book that, covenant is a rather shrewd recognition both of the potential of the human being to make and keep promises and of the need for boundaries on our behavior Hmm. because what a covenant says is i bind myself on this day that we're getting married to you alone no matter how i feel on a given day Mm -hmm. no matter whether somebody else attracts me no matter whether i'm bored with you no matter how frustrated i am in other words, there has to be a serious cause to breach a marriage covenant. That's the tradition.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And that the stability and permanence of a healthy marriage covenant is good for the adults. It's also good for the children. Mm-hmm. I follow Luther in the agreement that sex, sexuality, can be a chaotic force if it is not harnessed and directed in this way. Just doing what we feel like tends to bring heartbreak uh, unwanted pregnancy and so on, everything that goes with it, right? So all I argue in the book is that this grand tradition needs to be renewed both for heterosexuals and for non heterosexuals we're not doing very well on the heterosexual side
4: mm-hmm.
3: either and and so I actually make a make an argument hey let's be pro marriage pro covenant let 's fill out the content of that um let's just invite everybody into that norm.
4: Mm-hmm
1: so you would acknowledge i would think based on our previous conversation to this point that it's not because of the grand tradition that it needs to be renewed it's because of the evidence that always undergirded that tradition correct
3: that's right yeah it's not just it's not just because the tradition says so because the tradition can be wrong
1: right okay. so you would then in principle be open to new lines of evidence based on new expressions and new experiences that weren't heretofore possible
3: I would be open to it, but every time somebody makes a proposal to me about, I mean, other possibilities, I'm not usually very persuaded, but Mm -hmm. yes, I would be open to listening to the evidence, right? Because I listen to the evidence. Awesome. So I do say in my After Evangelicalism book that consent needs to be honored, and uh, and actually my feminist friends say, let's call it enthusiastic consent, not just consent, (laughs) that consent should be honored as a floor. Yeah, mm-hmm. We not fall below enthusiastic consent because that's about coercion and mm-hmm. rape and harm and abuse.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So that's a floor. But I think covenant marriage is the ceiling.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: so we want to teach our young people, this is this is the ceiling. This is where we're going. This is what we should be aspiring to and building towards. But never fall below the floor.
1: That's helpful to understand your view, which I disagree with. <laughs> Maybe well talk about it more later. <laughs>
0: yeah, which I think is helpful to keep in mind, though. When we say it, we're affirming of homosexuality, even just those words seem so kind of flat, but they're not, mm-hmm. because we all mean different things when we say we're affirming of homosexuality. I think you and I have a, David, have a very similar sexual ethic of still grounded in covenant marriage, and that marriage is, um, I've had friends, even pastoral friends, you say, well, okay, if I'm a, if you're affirming, that, that must mean that you think marriage is kind of up for grabs then? And I said, no, 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 not at all. As a matter of fact, I can actually pastor my folks better, I believe, because gay people are in all of our congregations. Queer people are in our congregations, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not. The reality is is that me being affirming now means that I can kind of invite them into this, you know, what has been kind of sectioned off for your, it just doesn't apply to queer people. Now I can say, come on into this covenant marriage relationship that we see uh, this beautiful picture of in Christ in the church. This is for you as well. And we're going to call your sexuality to be submitted to the church. I mean, Willie James Jennings just told us basically, when a couple goes to a church to get married, they're submitting themselves and their relationship and their new lives over to the service of the church. And I think that's a profoundly beautiful picture that I don't want you don't even have to give it up when you go affirming. You actually, I think, have this stronger ethic of covenant marriages actually are important biblically and it actually works out, perhaps it works out, uh, in practically in everyday life. I mean
1: of course it does. Of course it does. I just don't want to say By the way ceiling. this is an <laughs> example
3: of something that I would I want to be sure to flag. People are worried that that liberalizers are perfectly okay with every cultural trend.
1: Right, yeah, that's right, that's okay. one of my b- biggest pet peeves, to be honest. Is that right? So, <laughs> as a so, liberal, yeah,
3: you know. So, therefore, if Gushy's okay with gay relationships, and he's okay with child abuse, obviously, or yeah. he's okay with whatever, I think that the that the institution of marriage has fragmented and deteriorated in ways that are not good for people, mm-hmm. and so I would like to see it renewed. But I agree with you, Randy. That the best way to renew it is the way we're talking about.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Um, yeah. And and so if you don't have to have a message of exclusion, um, hey, the main thing I want to say about marriage is you're not invited.
0: Yes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> right. That's not much of a message, right? Yep. Yeah. But if you can say to everybody, "Here's the beautiful hard path in which you can be trained." To, to learn how to succeed at not at not 100% on every 100% success rate, right? but this is what we're striving for. And so I do not bless every cultural trend.
4: Mm-hmm. I
3: don't bless. I don't bless pornography. I don't I don't bless people dropping in and out of marriages like they used to drop in and out of relationships in high school. Mm-hmm. It's It's not the same thing. So, But yes, I am pressed from my left, from people who say that's not liberative enough, but, yeah. but that's not my standard. You also mentioned something about language, about welcoming and affirming, and I saw it in your questions. This is why I don't really like that language. Hmm. Welcoming, sure, everybody's welcome. But the question on affirming is what are we affirming? I'm affirming that LGBTQ people should be treated exactly the same as non-LGBTQ people in the life of the church and playing by the same rules. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm affirming. Yep. I'm not affirming uh, polyamory or uh, multiple partnerships or a consent-based sex ethic as the only ethic. So there's a lot that I'm not affirming. Yes, but this is what I am affirming. So I always want to be
0: able to define my own terms in that way. Yeah, I know that's yeah. hard for you to just pass by without.
1: It is, up, but... and you're witnessing personal growth happening at this moment. That I'm, I'm so not, proud of... I'm not commenting on that.
3: I'm so proud of you, Kyle. Good thank you, man. Good self-control. Thank well, you. Then. Thank you. Can
1: I ask one more question? To be my last one. Yep. Yep. Okay. And it's kind of related to some of the stuff we've been talking about. So you guys are involved together in a new ministry effort called the Post-Evangelical Collective, which our listeners at this point will have heard about. How do you, I know that includes people from a lot of different traditions and a lot of different persuasions, um, and there would be disagreement among a lot of those people about some of these issues. How do you approach being in religious community with those with whom you disagree about moral issues, um, both to the right and to the left? What, where do you draw the boundaries of fellowship?
3: That's a great question. It's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see what kind of community emerges under the banner of the post-evangelical collective.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, there are some broad lines of agreement among those who are affiliating. I think on sexuality, it appears to be non-negotiable inclusion, the way that I've described it in Changing Our Mind, appears to be non-negotiable. Whether there will be options further off to the left that I'm that I'm not accepting or not embracing, um, probably within the community, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. um, it wouldn't be decisive for me, for, for my sense that the post-evangelical collective is doing something significant in providing space for the millions driven out of or exiled from evangelical communities. There are boundaries in communities. Every community has a center and margins. Every community has boundaries. The tightness of those boundaries, who defines what they are, who, I mean, who, if anyone enforces them, that never goes away. Those questions never go away in community. I can't imagine PEC developing any kind of authoritarian structure. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be egalitarian and um, conversations together about all of these matters. Um, but I do want to flag that, yeah, every community has its boundaries. Remember your question, Randy, about like every generation has its issues? Mm -hmm. By returning to the study of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'm returning to the period in 1933 through 35 when the German Protestants were deciding how much to allow the Nazi party to determine what their theology and practice was going to be. And Bonhoeffer was, at that point, one of the, you might say, radical conservatives in the sense that he said, we should allow the Nazis to have zero effect on what we preach and what we do and they ended up moving into schism with the other protestants who were uh giving up from his perspective too much ground mm-hmm. to the nazis mm-hmm. um i mean that's a, a an argument long lost mm-hmm. it's a hundred years ago most people don't know anything about it but those people were in community and then they weren't because they couldn't agree on that mm-hmm. Yeah, i mean i have no illusions that Somehow we're going to be able to create a new community that doesn't have to run into tough discernment challenges in the future. I like what I see so far. It's a sweet first year or two.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: In traditional Christian communities, you never encounter a gay person because they're not allowed to be out. Yeah. Once I wrote this book and in the process of writing it, but then especially after when hundreds of LGBTQ people came my way, so many transformative encounters. hmm A whole community of people said, let me tell you my story. Yes. One by one by one. And everything they wrote in the book, I would just say I magnified a hundred times after after the experience of meeting all these people. Mm -hmm. So I'm very peaceful with what I did and and what the book has meant uh, to people. And people tell me has saved lives. I believe that. Mm -hmm. And I stand by it. And I'm glad you all wanted to talk about it today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, for going down an old road for you, David, but it's a, in such a crucial, essential conversation. Now I'm going to, you know, annoy probably three quarters of our audience and one half of our hosts here <laughs> by asking a sports ball question, but I know that you, <laughs> that baseball is like your love language, David. And I was just, I was hurting for you this fall. What the hell happened to the Braves this year?
3: Uh, The Braves didn't have enough pitching for the playoffs.
0: Is that right?
3: Yeah, their most experienced uh, starting pitcher was hurt. Their second most experienced was just getting off being hurt. And then they choked in terms of being able to hit in the clutch. So two years in a row to the Phillies, it was heartbreaking. Um, But there's always next year.
0: Yep. And Chris Sale. So (laughs) That's right. I don't know who any of these people are.
3: It's going to be a long, cold winter until baseball uh, comes back to us.
0: Pitchers and catchers report in a couple weeks.
3: Uh, That's right. Our basketball team sucks, (laughs) but very soon, pitchers and catchers report. Spring happens. I think God invented baseball. And I will stand by that. That's stunning.
1: So. I will say this much. I actually played baseball in high school, believe it or not, and if there were any sport I was gonna watch, there isn't, but if there were, it would probably be baseball. And part of the is reason that right? for that is Stanley Howard convinced me <laughs> that it that it can like be useful virtue training. <laughs> okay. I, I
3: believe that. I usually I often use sports um examples when talking about training and virtue, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm sure that goes over well in your progressive Christian circles, David. But I, I agree. I'm, I'm I'm thankful that you're still talking about sports because I get the stink eye for talking about sports whenever it happens. So uh, yeah, baseball is a romantic, beautiful game. Dr. David Gushy, thank you so much for writing this book, changing our mind in one of 29. Thank you for spending this time, and we look forward to more time with you.
3: It'll be great to see you uh, not too long from now in Milwaukee and doing the next round. Absolutely.
4: Amazing.
0: Thanks for listening to a pastor and a philosopher walk into a bar. We hope you're enjoying these conversations. Help us continue to create compelling content and reach a wider audience by supporting us at patreon.com/slash a pastor and a philosopher, where you can get bonus content, extra perks, and a general feeling of being a good person.
1: Also, please rate and review the show in Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. These help new people discover the show, and we may even read your review in a future episode. If anything we said pissed you off, or if you just have a
0: question you'd like us to answer, send us an email at philosopher at gmail.com.
1: Find us on social media at at PPWB podcast, and find transcripts and links to all of our episodes at pastorandphilosopher.buzzsprout.com. See you next time. Cheers.